0: 1 Samuel 8 selected verses from the living Bible in his old age Samuel retired and appointed his sons and judges in his place Joel and Abijah his oldest sons held court in Beersheba but they were not like their father for they were greedy for money they accepted bribes and were very corrupt in the administration of justice finally the leaders of Israel met in Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel they told him that since his retirement things hadn't been the same For his sons were not good men. Give us a king like all the other nations have, they pleaded. Samuel was terribly upset, and he went to the Lord for advice. Do as they say, the Lord replied, for I am the one they are rejecting, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually forsaken me and followed other gods. And now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but warn them about what it will be like to have a king. So Samuel told the people what the Lord had said. If you insist on having a king, he will conscript your sons and make them run before his chariots. But the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king, they said, for we want to be like the nations around us. He will govern us and lead us to battle. Samuel told the Lord what the people had said, and the Lord replied, Then do as they say and give them a king. So Samuel agreed
1: and sent the men home again. This is the word of God found in the first book of Samuel, the ninth chapter. Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear a day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I will send thee a man out of the land of Benjamin, and thou shalt anoint him to be captain over my people Israel, that he may save my people out of the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people, because their cry is come unto me. And when Samuel saw Saul... The Lord said unto him behold the man who I spake to thee of this same shall reign over my people then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said tell me I pray thee where the seer's house is and Samuel answered Saul and said I am the seer and when they were come down from the high place into the city Samuel communed with Saul upon the top of the house and they arose early And it came to pass about the spring of the day, that Samuel called Saul to the top of the house, saying, Up, that I may send thee away. And Saul arose, and they went out, both of them, he and Samuel abroad. And as they were going down to the end of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Bid the servant to pass on before us. And he passed on. But stand thou still a while, that I may show thee the word of God. Then Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it upon his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance?
2: Next Sunday will be the baccalaureate service here in Gaither Chapel at 10 a.m. This will need to be uh, earlier than the 11 o'clock service is normally held for the Montreat Church because the commencement service will be that afternoon at 2 o'clock and Montreat Anderson College will have charge of the service next Sunday morning. There will need to be a rearrangement of our Sunday school program in the light of this and also you need to be advised about it so that you can uh, be here for worship at that time at 10 o'clock next Sunday morning here in Gaither Chapel. Funny thing happened, uh, last night I was listening to the radio and Hubert Humphrey had been making a speech and he was traveling from place to place uh, in all of the primary contests and he forgot where he was. And uh, it reminded me of my one little stint in politics nearly 25 years ago in Texas when I was campaigning for a politician there. Uh, There were 36 voting precincts in our area And I was a a 17-year-old orator who was to go around and speak in behalf of our candidate who was seeking election from the Congress to the United States Senate. We spoke in such big cities as Telephone and Direct and Glory (laughs) and and Emerson and Garrett's Bluff and other great towns in in East Texas. And one evening, one of our candidates stood up to speak. I'll never forget the man because of the mistake he made. His name was Wasson Uzel. and I'm probably the only person who remembers him, but I, I remember that he got up and he spoke very glowingly of the people of this particular farming district and how wonderful they were. And he said, I want you to know that I love every one of you and that I'm so glad to be back here in... 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 <laughs> And then he turned uh, to someone on the platform and he spoke it in such a way that it went out all over the sound system. He said, What's the name of this place? (laughs) So we learned about politicians early. Well, people are always seeking a leader. And there was a time when the people of God were governed in a theocracy. That is, God was their ruler and he spoke to them by the prophet, by the priest and by the judge who ruled over them. As we saw last Sunday in our lesson, there was a good man who could not restrain the evil of his sons, whose name was Eli. And as a result of Eli's feebleness, or as a result of his busyness, his own sons became corrupt and immoral, and they went the way of all flesh that goes in rebellion against God, And they lusted after women, they were greedy for money, and they abused the power that they had. So much so that God brought judgment upon Eli's household. And in Eli's stead there came a very splendid person, a noble man whose name was Samuel, just a little boy who had been prayed over by his mother and left in the temple, the house of God, to be raised. And it was there that God had spoken to him, he had a listening ear, he heard the voice of God and as a result of it he had a seeing eye. He judged over the people, but he too seems to have had a blind spot in his own home. For some reason he could not transmit to his own sons how to be a prophet. For some reason, he could not transmit to them the righteousness which he, Samuel, had. And his sons accepted bribes, as Albert Andrews read to us a moment ago. The people began to be restless. They were being attacked by the Philistines. They needed a warrior leader, they thought. Samuel was old, and so they demanded that they have a king. This was not the way God had originally intended it to be, but they were persistent. Samuel was an old, silver-haired man by now, and yet he comports himself with great and good sense. When he saw that the people were insistent and adamant that they have a king, he acquiesced in what they had said. He took his saddened and troubled heart to the Lord, And God spoke to Samuel and said, they have not rejected uh, you, they have rejected me. Tell them what will happen if they have a king, so that they will understand. And so Samuel told them what would happen. And in those words again that Al Andrews read to us a moment ago, they were told that he would conscript their sons that they would be drafted into the military, that they would be taxed to support the luxuries of the king's court, that they would have to go before him and cry out, God save the king, that they would have a king like the other nations wanted, but that there would be hardship that would come upon them with a king. So Samuel had prayed, He carried out the instructions the Lord had given him. And so he watched for who would be king, the first of all of the kings, over Israel. And then one of those strange things happens. That is all in the providence of God. There is a young man who is everything that you need in order to be elected to high office. He is charismatic. He's tall, six feet, four, five. He's sharp. He comes and stands out head and shoulders over everyone else. But Samuel is going to learn that God does not judge the outward appearance, but God judges what's inside a man. And if ever a man began auspiciously and wonderfully and beautifully. It was this Saul, the son of Kish, who one day seeks after some lost animals of his father's, and he and his servant who are in the livestock business come into the area where Samuel is. It's significant that Saul does not even know Samuel. Everyone else in all of Israel knew Samuel, the man of God. They all knew the story of Eli. They all knew the story of his two sons. They all knew, knew the story of how at one time the glory had departed from the place of God. Everyone, it seems, except Saul. And Saul was intent on making a success in the livestock business. And he is out. In, seeking to round up some wild donkeys of his fathers who have gone astray. The days go by and they do not find the animals. They're about to turn back and Saul's servant says to him, you know there is a remarkable man who lives in this area. He is a seer. And we are told that in that day and time the seer was the prophet. Someone who could see into the future. And so he says, let's go to the seer's house and ask him if he can help us. A sort of superstitious faith this servant had. And so Saul thinks that'll be a good idea. they will go and go to the seer's house. And so those words in verse 19 occur. Where... Samuel comes, and Saul sees him and says, tell me where the seer's house is. And Samuel says, I am the seer. I am the seer. Come to my house. He started off that day looking for donkeys, and he ends up being anointed the first of all of the kings that will reign over Israel. Strange things can happen in one day, strange and remarkable things. It would be wonderful if this would be the story and it would continue on in this remarkable way, but it doesn't. There are a couple of years, finally Saul is anointed publicly and the people shout out, God save the king, long live the king. There is a vicious and cruel enemy that has perpetrated a horrible crime against some of God's people. This Saul demonstrates that he is not only tall and handsome but courageous. He calls the people together to avenge this tribe that is being persecuted And a great military victory takes place. And so the people realize that they have a leader. They have a leader now. And he is publicly to be anointed. He is magnanimous toward his enemies, his enemies uh, who had not followed him at first. Some of his friends say, let's destroy your enemies. And Saul says, no, no, let's not do that. So there are many good attributes about this man to begin with, and that continues on for a couple of years. And then three things take place in his career that spell the undoing of Saul. The first thing is that he becomes drunken with his own power and success. It is an old saying that Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, and that's true in the church. It's true in an individual. It's true in a political system. And here you begin to see this corruption set in. First of all, this man so intoxicated by his successes feels that he is ready to go to war one time He does not need to wait for Samuel, the man of God, to offer up prayers to God and sacrifices. Samuel is late getting there. He'll do it himself. And so he takes the priestly responsibility upon himself and arrogates unto himself in the name of God to perform the function of the prophet and the priest, which was not his to perform. When this takes place, Samuel who had been noticeably supportive of the one whom God had enabled him to single out now denounces Saul and tells Saul that this act of sacrilege will not go unpunished by God, but that God will take his anointing away from Saul. Beware of an irreverent heart. Beware of a time when the Scriptures cannot speak to you nor there is no reverence in the church of God and there is a deadening familiarity about it all. Keep a heart that is sensitive, sensitive to God. I was thinking today that next Sunday there will be another special speaker for baccalaureate. This is the last time that I will speak to many of the students here at Montreat Anderson College. There are words that come back to my heart all the time when I think about the the privilege and the responsibility of corporate worship in a school chapel. And to me, the most poignant words I ever have read regarding this were written by Sir Henry Newbold over in England when one day he took his son to visit the fine old school that he as a boy had attended, the prep school. He leads his son into the chapel. And he speaks to the boy words of great wisdom. He says, "This is the chapel. Here, my son, your father heard the thought, the thoughts of youth, and heard the words which one by one, the touch of life has turned to truth. There are certain thoughts that you may think now. And certain words that may be spoken to you now, which later the touch of life, will turn to truth. And one of those words is to keep a sensitive heart to God. Do not become sacrilegious, nor arrogant, nor presumptuous in the presence of the Almighty. Saul did this. And it was the first step that he took toward his own undoing. Next, there is a great scene of disobedience in his life. In chapter 15 of the first book of Samuel, you will read how on an occasion God had given specific instructions to this man Saul, who was the leader of his people, that a ruthless and heartless enemy was to be destroyed completely, And that there were to be left not even the animals in this place, but Saul disobeys God. He goes into the battle and he thinks it would look great to come back toward his people, leading captive a king who was supposed to have been slain at the instructions of God with a rope around his neck showing everyone how he saw his triumph. And then with that politician's rare sense of casuistry and rationalization, that old ranching instinct in him tells him that there are some very fine sheep and some very fine oxen there. And wouldn't it be good to keep some of these oxen and some of these sheep? And so he does. And when Samuel the prophet comes, And the wise old man of God's ears are listening and he hears the bleating of sheep and the lowing of oxen. Samuel, the prophet of God, says, What is this bleating and this lowing in my ears? What is taking place? And then Saul, politician-like, says, We kept these for sacrifices to the Lord, Samuel. We wanted to sacrifice something to God, so Samuel, we brought these to you. We really built this big church to the glory of God. We air conditioned it to the glory of God, so God would stay cool. This is the way we we take care. We rationalize a lot of things. We did all of this for God. But God, let me keep 10%. I want the fringe benefits. He didn't obey. And that famous line of Samuel speaks to Saul here that obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than sacrifice. It means more to God that you obey him than that you present him with great gifts. Obedience is the organ by which we grow in our Christian faith. We think that the person grows in the Christian faith who has a 180 IQ and a great knowledge of all the books of theology, that's not true. You grow by obedience to God. This is how you grow in the Christian faith. And Saul disobeyed, and his disobedience leads further toward his downfall. First he is sacrilegious, next he disobeys God, and then third, which is always the hallmark of spiritual bankruptcy, he seeks counsel of the witch of Ender. Poor old Bishop Pike, rejected the resurrection of Christ, rejected the virgin birth of Christ, rejected the the authority of scripture, gave us the blueprints of a super church, got married three times, finally consulted a medium to talk to his son who had suicided. I feel sorry. Sorry but, sorry, but this is the way it goes. Consult the palmist. Read the book of astrology. Read about the revival of Satan worship and witchcraft. And examine ourselves in the church and see whether we have been guilty of sacrilege in our attitude to God, one of irreverence, running down the aisle of the church, throwing confetti, celebrating communion. The body and blood of Christ is not celebrated that way. A broken and a contrite heart has a deep joy at a knowledge of the forgiveness of sins, but not the idiot hilarity of some avant-garde theologian. And this leads to spiritual bankruptcy in the church. And it leads to anarchy and moral anarchy in the nation. These three things happen to Saul. And one day he falls upon his sword and ends his life. In between you can read the stories of what happened between Saul and David. How jealousy had driven him mad. How he loved David and hated him all at the same time. But Saul had gone in rebellion against God and so nothing but heartache can follow. There is a story in this book of a 16-year-old boy. His people were Jewish. But in order that they might gain some favor with their community, they became Protestants, ostensibly Christians. They joined the Lutheran Church in Germany. As a teenager, young Karl Marx wrote a beautiful essay on abiding in Christ based on those matchless words from John chapter 15. But then later, in rebellion against God, in rebellion against Christ, in rebellion against the church, in rebellion against man, Karl Marx was to say, and I quote his words, in a single word, I hate all gods. Chairman Mao, With 60 million people, according to some estimates, having been destroyed in China. Stalin with the millions that he destroyed and millions yet to be destroyed. Come from this type of rebellion against God. And we will feel its results even today. There was a young man who was frustrated in his desires to be an architect. He became a house painter, a wallpaper. But he had the charisma, he could get a crowd. And he did. He could speak to them in such a way that they thronged to listen to him. And Adolf Hitler led the world into the hell of World War II with its vicious destruction of tens and tens of millions of people and all of the havoc that came from another man in rebellion against God. Our fewer, our leader, This is what can happen and what has happened down through the centuries. But you know there's a wonderful thing here. Take me to the seer's house. What kind of seer will help me? There's a remarkable man right now named Buckminster Fuller who has caught the ears of Millions of young people all over the world, although he's past 75 years of age. Ball-headed, what hair he's got is white. And yet he communicates effectively with millions of young people. People are astonished at the boldness of his ideas. And recently he was being interviewed in the TV Guide, and the interviewer was talking to him, and he made this astonishing observation. He said to the interviewer, did you know that right now there are over 200,000 radio and television signals that are in this room? And he said that young people have been misled because of technology. They think technology is wonderful, but really they are wonderful. Their minds are far more fascinating than anything technology has brought forth. Because they can make a little TV in their own mind. Our television set broke day before yesterday and I was telling my little boy this. He wanted to watch the cartoons yesterday. I said you can read a book and make a little TV in your own mind. You can recall something that took place 3,000 years ago. Between Samuel and Saul. You can be a seer. You can learn here. Here is a lesson for the eye that really wants to see and the ear that really wants to hear. Last week I quoted uh, George Bernard Shaw's great uh, part of his great play, St. Joan of Arc. And when she had gone into that silly little king of France, this teenager who led France toward victory, Charles said to her, Voices, 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 that's all you talk about is the voice of God that speaks to you. Why doesn't God speak to me? You know what little St. Joan said? Because you never listen. Because you never listen. Our minds are so full of trash that we don't look with a seeing eye and we don't listen with a hearing ear. We crowd out God by our very busyness. That's why Jesus spoke as he did to Martha. Jesus was the greatest of all the seers because he is uniquely the Son of God. And think about him, what he could see. He saw the multitudes crowded into the temple and the men with all the money putting in the great gifts. Everyone was impressed but Jesus saw one little widow who put in two little mites and he said she's given more than everyone. The disciples who were so concerned about things, Jesus could see a lily and he said look at that lily, consider it. God made that lily, God made, that lily. God made you. God will take care of you. He saw a sparrow and he said not the fifth little sparrow will fall to the ground. But what your heavenly father's eye is on that sparrow. You see that wishy-washy vacillating Simon Peter. So impultuous and so impetuous. So often wrong in what he said. And yet Jesus saw in him the very type upon which he would build the church in the gates of hell would not prevail against him. He had the eye of a seer. Saul failed because he was irreverent and disobedient and superstitious and spiritually bankrupt. But a thousand years after this Saul, another Saul appears. A Saul from a city by the name of Tarsus, who one day, not out looking for donkeys, but out looking for Christians to kill them. On the Damascus Road, he hears a great and powerful voice speaking. And the light shines round about him, and he falls, and he listens. And he hears Jesus speaking, "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?" And Saul remembers that he had consented to the stoning of Stephen. And Jesus says to him, "I have chosen you. You are going to be a vessel." To bear my message to all of the Gentiles. The difference between these two souls is more than a thousand years. It's a difference in attitude. One soul in the Old Testament starts off beautifully and ends up a shipwreck. The soul that we read about in the New Testament starts off badly. And ends up gloriously. And the difference between the two is that when the seer speaks to them, one could look back later at the end of his life and say, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. When we come into the chapel and we hear the words of truth or the word of God is read or God speaks to us, Do we seek to crowd him out of our way and say no God I'm going to control my life and when I feel religious or I really need you I'll let you in. Or will we be obedient to it? The key to life in the future not only for students who will be graduating here but for all of us is whether or not we will listen for the voice of God and whether we will look For the hand of God in what we do. We cannot pretend and play with God. Last two weeks ago, one of my friends was eating lunch. He is a doctor and he was eating lunch with some more doctors and they were talking about spiritual things. And so one of the men present said to one doctor who is skeptical, he said to him, "Uh, What do you believe? uh, Do do you believe in God? You never go to church? He said, yeah, I think I believe in God. So my friend said, do you ever pray? He said, no, I don't pray. So he said to him again, he said, "Uh, would you pray? Have you ever prayed? And he said, well, I, I guess if I got cancer, I'd pray. And then the friend said to him, because he is a doctor, he said, in other words, you sort of want God to be on call in case you need him. And this set the man to thinking. And the friend and I talked some about it. I'm encouraged by the fact that he is beginning to see that his whole attitude toward God is one that is not adequate because that's the first step in the right direction. And I believe the man is closer because he's beginning to see the inadequacy of the position that he is now in. Well, this Saul in the New Testament never left any cities in ruin. The only blood that he had anything to do with was that which flowed out of his own veins once he became a follower of Jesus. Instead of people dreading the very name of Saul, they look upon this Saul in the New Testament who becomes Paul the Apostle is the one for whom they can name their cities and their schools and their children with great joy. Because there is a quality of life in him and the love that is in him and the fellowship that is in him that has brought blessing all down these 2,000 years since he lived. Take me to the seer's house. Take me to the man of God, and when he shows me what God has for me, let me not be disobedient to that heavenly vision. Let us stand in prayer. O God, our Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the fact that thou hast given to us these people in the Bible, just as they are, not touched up, are not made any better, but just like they are because we know that before you we see so many of these failings in us. Deliver us, we pray thee, from a spirit of irreverence. Oh God, help us to obey and to know that this is better than all the sacrifices we might make in other directions. Deliver us, O oh God, from superstition and enable us to trust in the good sense of thy word, its power, its authority, its grace. Father, help us to see what can happen to the whole wide world when just one life is yielded up in obedience to thee and cause us to be willing to so submit ourselves to Thy love and Lordship over us that our lives in turn may bring a blessing to the day and to the world in which we now live. If any of us here present has not come to that moment of surrender, or if some of us hear since that we have let loose of holy things, deliver us, O God, from that, and accept our yielding of our lives to thee and our reaffirmation of our faith, and lift us above those things that will destroy us. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ And the love of God our Father, and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with you all, both now and
1: forevermore.